Hey, Chad. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Chad, put a shirt on, man. You're uh, you're making us all look like wusses over here. <laughs> you're definitely. You, this is definitely the most muscles we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I get that a lot. That's that's kind of your thing, though. <laughs> I mean, only recently. Actually, everyone thought I was really skinny up until like four months ago. Then, then I just like changed my profile pic to like a full body shot. I was like, wait, what happened? What's going on there? <laughs> did you get more pro? Did you get more followers after that? No, I get less followers. I think actually, I think that people like see the name Chad Vigorous in like a muscular person coming across uh, their feed, and they go like. This can't possibly be what <laughs> this can't possibly end well. <laughs> I've wondered about like um Okay, that's good. There we go. I yeah, I've wondered about like cuz my avi or whatever profile pic is not me. And so I've wondered if I made it me if I could get more followers or if I'm if I'm just fucking, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's this the recently departed uh, Luke Perry. Luke Perry. Yeah, poor guy. Gone too soon. May in my he opinion. may he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. Yeah, no, I, I I've heard that if it's a pro, if you have a profile pic of you and you know you're looking good, uh, you'll get more followers. That's what, <clears throat> that's what I've been told. Anyways, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, I always. I mean, I think it depends on like what kind of. Uh, like, wh- like what your kind of niche is? Yeah, I think on the left, I think that having like a, a profile picture that's just like a muscular dude, like, and and I will admit that I'm ironically fit. It's like <laughs> I got fit in college because I was incredibly bored, and then I never really tried to get like muscles. I I just didn't eat properly for like five years. I just ate everything. Then like I met then like I met this chick who like had lost like 150 pounds, and she was like, maybe you should try like logging your food. <laughs> and then I lost some weight. <laughs> well, while we're on the topic of, um, you know, looking good, looking, you know, hygienic, looking whatever, I want to poll y'all. I want to po- poll you two gentlemen on your opinion about something. So, um, God damn, here it comes. Yeah, here it comes. I have to go to a wedding next weekend. It, is it too early to wear seersucker? No. No. No, it's never too early. Never no. too early. You might <laughs> suck in the dead winter, in my opinion. Well, I oh, thought, it's in Texas too, well, right? Yeah, it's in Texas. Oh, but you're fine. I thought it was like from like early May to Labor Day. Like I've always heard, you can't wear seersucker nah, after Labor Day. Nah, nah. If you know the rules, you can break them. <laughs> I, I, w- I will also admit that I'm incredibly tacky. The only reason that I'm incredibly in shape is because it makes it easier to buy clothes. Because then people, just, it, it's honestly, it's just like you wear, you wear something tight. People are like, oh, that's a nice shirt. And it's like it's not a nice shirt. It's like a it's like it's a picture of like it's a graphic tee from a Target with like a picture of Spider Man on it, and I'm pretty sure that's a cum stain on the bottom. And people go like, "Oh, like I like I'm just incredibly muscular." They go, "Oh yeah, I can see that." <laughs> We're gonna send you a uh, a uh, true belly shirt, which might end up having uh, Garfield holding a piece of coal on it. <laughs> so you can that sounds amazing. You can you know you can fit that out with those. Hell yeah those 22 inches what is what is that what's what you, what's going on over there Chad? I, I don't measure things oh like, come on come on. First, hey. first of all like i think it's sad i personally i think it's sad that you know well, i think a lot of things are sad but i think it's sad <laughs> that some people are like lifting uh for the gram they're lifting to take photos they're lifting and, and because that to me said that you're cheating the weight it's like you know and I, I know it's a meme now that people think it's a meme to cheat the weight but that's just that's also sad 
what it's is, sad to me that what does it mean to cheat mean to cheat the way exactly it means to not give it your all oh. it means to go into the gym and it means to like you know like you know muscle things up have bad form not stick to the fundamentals <laughs> uh you know take long breaks to flirt in front of the weight, to step over the weight, to sit on the weight, to not re-rack the weight, to right. slam the weight, to drop the weight. I, I, I'm going to put this out there. You know, the weight shows up for you. And you <laughs> every time. It. Every time. Every time. Every time you go to the gym, 25 pounds is 25 pounds. But some days you don't show up, in, you know, for it. And I, I don't know what to say. And some people think that's funny. Some people think that's a, that's a joke. But I don't. I think it's, it, it shows how far America has decayed. Chad, I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I might not have showed up for the weight a few times. <laughs> we, 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 listen, the weight, the weight listen, we, I, first of all, that's happened to all of us. You, you can't show up for the weight every time. Uh, you know, it's like the same thing else in life. Sometimes you go to school, you don't show up prepared. Sometimes you're in a relationship, you don't show up, give, give it your all. And that's fine. But like, you know, because you're a human. The weight is the weight. The weight's not a human, obviously. It's, 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 it's uh, you know. It's iron or like I don't know stainless steel. I don't know what they make it out of. That's, that's not. That's not my. That's not, that's not my life. That's not, that's not my thing. I don't. I don't. Fuck. Whatever. And like I guess rubber too because there's pad. Any. We're getting off track. The point is, you gotta show up like eighty percent of the time for the weight. You got at least, at least 80% of the time. eighty percent. The eighty twenty rule. I'm with that. Let me. Twenty rule. I'll tell you this. The the most successful weightlifting program I ever went on was Comrade Falleaf's program. You you ever seen this on the T Nation boards? I've seen so many different programs, but I think you should probably, you know, lay it out for both me and your listeners because I don't remember it. Well, Comrade Falleaf, and, and this is a character that's probably mostly apocryphal. A lot of people think it's just the alter ego of Pavel Satsulin. You know Pavel <laughs> Satsulin? I do. Yeah. Pavel's a bad... I think he was former KGB, and now I think he trains like Army Rangers or some shit. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, his whole thing cool. is ruthless elimination of the unessential. So it's just all the old school lifts, you know, bench, uh, squat, deadlift. Right. Occasional clean and jerk in there a little bit uh, if you're training for competition. But his thing was you just train one lift per day, and that's it. But you, 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 you never max out. You always leave a couple reps in the bank. Uh-huh. But you, other than that, you don't cheat the weight. So, like one lift, you mean just like one, um, you know, like one bench press, well, not he, one rep, but you know. Uh, on this program, hey, well, his his big promise was that you know you could see like a six hundred percent increase in strength in like whatever amount of time. <laughs> I don't know if I got six hundred percent, but I got I got really strong really quick on something like that. I mean, the funny thing is, it's like I get a lot of all joking aside, I do leave my DMs open for people who just want to like send me or ask me questions about weightlifting or fitness advice or nutrition advice because I am a certified personal trainer and I do, you know, I do have like a background in nutrition as well. Right. Um, but like the answer to most people's problems, like questions, you know, the unsexy answer is like, well, you actually just have to go. You have to show up to the gym and like so many people just like I mean the number of people it's going to sound bad who and it's, I mean it's true though like who like consistently go and I mean consistently like two to three stick to a program for like a long period of time consistently go and don't see results is so minuscule when you compare it to the people who like 
think they're going enough, but really go like once a week, you know, skip, you know, go for four weeks, then stop going for three months. The people who don't like necessarily, I don't even care if you watch your diet, frankly, because like that's like that's unless your goal is actually to lose weight and like, you know, you know, cut like that's kind of irrelevant to be. But like if you're if you want to see whatever progress you want to see. You have to actually go and tailor your program to that kind of progress. Uh, that can be a difficult aspect of it where it's like, okay, well, I, I you know, I want to be able to run a marathon and I went to the gym and deadlifted four times a week. And now I can, you know, I can fucking deadlift three times my body weight, but I, I get winded. I get winded. That'll happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but that's like, that's even that is kind of just like discordance, but like, the, but you know, but it's really just like, you gotta show up. Like, I don't really have any special tricks for how to get in shape. I'm actually just like a dumbass, but I just went consistently for like eight years. And I think the longest I've ever taken off from going to the gym without it being like an injury is like two weeks. And right. that was just like, uh, you know, I kind of just had a flu. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is just like consistency. It's, with anything else in life, it's you, you show up, you don't cheat yourself, you don't cheat the weight, you don't cheat America. That's right. Uh, well, I mean, actually, you, actually, you can cheat America. <laughs> you, you, like, like I say, respect the, respect the weight room, respect other lifters, don't respect the law, and don't respect the police. You got it? <laughs> <laughs> Vigorous is maxim. <laughs> I have a lot of vigorousisms. <laughs> Well, you can't. I probably, I, honestly, I have a mild lisp. I should, probably shouldn't say the word like vigorousism. <laughs> like on people's podcast. That is a lot of fun to say, though. It is, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, you came to the right place to drop off the vigorousisms. We're here for them. We're, we're here for them, for sure. Um, well, uh, so Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Um, no, thank you for having me. Big fan, big fan. Yeah, same. Yeah. Same. Yeah, we've been wanting to do this for a while. And uh, it's just it's just so nerve wracking for me to ask people to be guests on our show because I'm just always thinking like, what if they think we're stupid or don't like us? Or something? So, yeah, and I'm sure this happened before. Yeah. So I had to bit up the nerve to ask you. But anyway, <laughs> I'm glad it came together. No one, no one is dumber or more. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Less likely to say no. I'm like the Nicolas Cage of podcasts. If you, I'm just happy to be places. Prodigiously talented, but you'll just take anything. <laughs> I'm not anything. I mean, I, would, I mean, I would say I wouldn't be on the Joe Rogan show, but I would be on the Joe Rogan show if like if he offered. Uh, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't go on like I don't know David Duke's podcast. Right. Like, it's like yeah. D three, which is probably going to get him sued for I don't know, like Mighty Ducks. Yeah, uh, that's right. Violation. But no, no, I, I'm, I'm definitely glad to be on here. You know, I'm a big fan of your podcast, big fan of your Twitter presence. So it's the natural fit. Put on sleeves. Yeah. Um. Well, we thank you for uh, for doing it. Um. We got a. I guess we got an itinerary of some things to talk about. Some things that happened this week. Yeah. We. Right? Uh, it's funny because, like today, like three big stories popped off, and like just. Everything we'd planned to talk about just kind of pales in comparison. So it's like that's true. We'd call a little bit of an audible here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what what was the biggest thing that happened today? So, in in my estimation, okay, <laughs> I, and I don't want to rank any of these things, but I think the first thing maybe we should kick it off with is the big Julian Assange story. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Pretty bad takes on this, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly from the people that are like, you know, 
I guess just, you know, focusing on what a piece of shit he is or whatever. Mm-hmm. But also just not really paying attention to the the repercussions of what it means for a free pet free press. Yeah. And so anyway, I would I would say let's kick it off there and then we'll work our way down to uh, the consent condoms if time <laughs> if if time allows. <laughs> I mean, really, they're related, I suppose, and if you think hard enough about it. Yeah, really. They really, <laughs> they really are. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Well, I was really shocked to see uh, Assange. Um, I guess it kind of looks like he hasn't really seen the light of day in a few years, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think literally he's got, like, vitamin D deficiency. And... Yeah, I, I remember a doctor who wrote this thing in The Guardian. It was like, he wrote an op-ed, and the op-ed was just about, Julian Assange needs care. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like hell. His blood works shitty and all this stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, he's just been living in an embassy, right? Right. For a few years, the Ecuadorian embassy. So, do you know, like, the process, like, what happened? Like, uh, they just decided to kick him out. Like, so I guess the Brits, right? Chad, the Brits got him on behalf of the U.S. of A. Oh, is, are they trying to extradite him to the U.S.? I think that's the deal. Um, I'm not sure what the process by which he ends up getting kicked out of the embassy actually was. Um, it was actually, I think, you know, a lot of people I know were talking about it and they said they expected it to happen around this time. But I think for the most part, it, the entire saga of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and also sort of Chelsea Manning, you can kind of wrap that in there, is really ultimately a sad one because like the, like, it seems as though Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning are going to be the only two people who go to jail for like the war crimes in Iraq (laughs) and like they were the ones who exposed them and it just brings to mind the fact that you know we went through this whole period of time under Obama eight years ago or I guess well ten years ago now um, where it was supposedly that we don't look back we don't look back on crimes. We don't look back. You know, we have to, as a country, move forward. And, you know, if we just keep focusing on all the things the Bush administration did, the torture, the, you know, the extra legal assassinations you know, that, you know, that happened under Bush and Obama, uh, we're going to end up like as a country being mired in the sort of like the bad things. Right. We're going to end up, you know, we're going to have to have a, a national conversation about America as like not a benevolent actor at the global level. And that's really what it feels like, because ultimately it's just like no one went to jail for the information that WikiLeaks leaked. No one went to jail for the information that Chelsea Manning leaked. Really, it was more like le- in fact, people really don't even talk about it anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that's... It, it feels like sorry. It feels like it was a mild embarrassment, and like what you know, what this is all about is that it was a minor blow, but even like, even a minor blow is too big of a blow to the idea that America is just like this benevolent foreign actor that is like operating on a global scale in a way that makes the world a better place, as opposed to just like a malicious one. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I you, you make a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that. It's like we don't we don't talk about what uh information Chelsea Manning leaked. I mean like we, these are videos of yeah, uh, you know, American I, I, you know helicopter pilots strafing civilians and stuff like that. I yeah. mean we're talking about just straight up genocidal third reich shit, yeah. you know, and it's like you're absolutely right. They're they're the two that will um be prosecuted for it and have to pay the price and will be the only two. I mean it's uh it, it does fit it does seem like a really tragic end to a long sort of protracted story did y'all see this thing that 
uh, Hillary Clinton, when asked about like the reverberating effect of Julian Assange's whistleblowing, was that the only two people whose lives were inalterably changed, according to Hillary Clinton, were Ben Ali, the former Tunisian dictator, uh-huh. whose, whose whose credibility was just shot after <laughs> Julian Assange, <laughs> you know, revealed all this stuff. And then some senator, I forget what his name was, that like just totally went unpunished and went back to like his post and like that was it. And that's all that she could produce. But like, you know. It's incredible. I mean, of course, you know, the I, the people, but the people who were inexorably, sorry, I guess not inexorably, but sort of indisputably punished for the information that was leaked are like the people in the Middle East who like we are continually bombing. Right. I mean, it's right. not direct punishment, but it, it feels very much like, you know, we talk about how, you know, the information kind of went in one ear and out the other. And a lot of that has to do with what I think is just the discordance that exists within most people's heads as a result of them, like internalized neoconservatism. And I talk about this a lot because we have, you know, in our media and we have in our society, neocons, right? People who we can right. identify, your Bill Crystals, your David Frums, your sort of Dick Cheney's, your uh, Michael Bolton's. It is Michael Bolton, right? That's that's the singer. <laughs> John Bolton. John Bolton. John Bolton. John, 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 <laughs> walrus. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the Lorax. Yeah, I, uh, but you know, yeah, exactly. The uh, the war acts. <laughs> but anyway, uh, like we have people who are neocons, right? Right. And so it's very easy to look at the sort of the extreme end of that ideology and the people who embody it and go, okay, well, right there, those are neocons. They want to. They have never seen a war that they don't like. They've never seen a country that that doesn't need to be invaded or potentially invaded, right? And but what that kind of obscures, and I say this, this works for a lot of things, whether it be neoliberalism, racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, is that like within all of us is like the put like though we're all indoctrinated with sort of the same tenets that they embody and the more extreme versions of it, which is like America's a benevolent global actor. And so when you talk about what Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning revealed, it's like that like that idea of America is committing war crimes. We have it on footage, you know. It just sort of it's like a Westworld thing. It's like this doesn't look like anything to me. It's like because how could it? Because America can't do something like that. Right. And right. I think that, you know, it for every person that it wakes up who who goes like, Wow, I'm literally looking at what looks like that one, you know, video from the running man where Arnold Schwarzenegger's in the you know, everyone knows that video from everyone knows the running man. Yeah. Right. Arnold Schwarzenegger like is in the helicopter and the pilot shoots at the crowd of protesters. It's just like there's 10 or 11 or 12 people who see it once in the news who hear about it once in the papers and then it just you know it just goes they just forget about it because it's not what they want to believe to be true about america then you have another sect of people who who get angry you get angry that someone might impugn the honor of american foreign policy might impugn the morality of america and that's like just a visceral reaction that they have yeah, no, you're you're right. Um, I mean, like, we don't really... That's the really weird thing about this, um, is just the amnesia we have for those years in general. And I think it's part of the sort of internalized neoconservative conservatism. It's like, uh, you know, we just don't talk about how those... How dramatically those years shaped American life. And, I mean, shit, there was things that um, I believed up until, you know, a few years ago, just pretty recently, that... I feel like we're sort of drilled into my head through indoctrination and things from those years. Go on. <laughs> Such as? <laughs> well, I don't know. You, <clears throat> For example, you're told Iran is the bad guy. 
I, th- I believe that. Or, I mean, I didn't believe it, but, you know, it's not like I was like, whatever. But, uh, you know, I think on a subconscious level, I was at least sort of wary or something until I went to college and actually met people who were from Iran. And, you know, yeah. like, you, you just, I, I'm just saying, like, there are things from that era that we just, uh, you're right. We just sort of internalize and we don't, we don't question or challenge. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, I think we're also going to talk about Elon Omar in a few in a few minutes or maybe later or maybe not at all. But I, I think it's, it's worthwhile to in, sort of introduce that like that that concept of Islamophobia into the conversation, because it's not just like the explicit racism of the, or the explicit Islamophobia or the explicit neoconservatism of the Republicans or the reactionaries or the far right. You know, it's also that kind of implied, implicit, um, you know, the same sort of aspects, the same sort of systemic problems that are embodied by the policies of the Democrats, right? So I think that one of the biggest failures of the Obama administration, besides not looking back and having a real reckoning with what happened under the Bush administration, was amping up the war, continuing the, you know, to spreading it further, continuing like sort of this like indiscriminate bombing of the Middle East under sort of like the the guise or the coded term of the war on terror. Um, and expecting that to not have like an effect on the way the country views Muslims, right? Or views the Middle East or views Islam altogether or views Arab people or people who, who even like resemble Arab people like Sikhs, right? Because they have the right. turbans. And so you say to yourself, okay, well, you know, the Democrats don't use the phrase, um, they don't use the phrase sort of radical Islamic terror. They don't use the, they, you know, they don't use the phrase or say that, you know, we're at war with Islam. They just bomb the countries. But people, you know, people are going to think about that, right? People, you know, if they are not necessarily consciously thinking about the fact that the war machine is spreading to seven different countries, that we're indiscriminately bombing the Middle East, like on a subconscious level, when you kind of combine that with the implied morality of the United States of America, people say, okay, well, then those must be bad people over there. Like, you know, if we're bombing that country, you know, if we're bombing those people, they must be bad, right? They must have done something. Or if they haven't done something, perhaps they're just inherently bad, right? And that's the kind of language the Republicans use. And unfortunately, the Democrats don't really have a good counter narrative for that because they just they just stay silent on it and we just have to keep bombing them. Yeah, no, um, that is a really good point. It's like we, you know, the thing is, like, we talk about Obama, like the drone president, but it's really interesting. Like, I mean, he was so much more than that. Like, we forget that one of the first things he did was escalate the war in Afghanistan yeah. in 2009. Um, and it's like, what is that? That's that's war making. The guy just continued a war with zeal. You know, not, <laughs> not right. it's not, not like he did it like, you know, they've got my hands tied behind my back. Um, and, and uh, you know, we've talked a lot about that on the show, how... Our understanding of power and, and the establishment um, is so, you know, I think we have this very sort of rudimentary understanding that it's like the conservatives are the baddest, the Democrats are a little less bad, but it's just like you kind of have to have a little more of like a dialectical understanding, like the two badnesses feed into each other and create something really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even worse than that, I think that like, you know, the the kind of lesser of two evils argument people make relies on these like these evils being, you know, unreflective on their own evilness. Like and I think that's like the issue when it comes to the Democratic Party sometimes where it's like they know that the Republican Party is bad. 
it's like they can't possibly not know that. It's like it's, it's impossible to like think Republicans are good. Like I, I don't accept that the Democratic Party really thinks that like the Republican Party, the party of Trump, the party of like, you know, David Dukes without the baggage, the party of like and of like, you know, the I say like the like the the pro family like the the, the pro rate party of family values, right? I mean they can't possibly think those are good people. But like A, I think it's even worse they're like codependent with them. Which is which is weird, right? They rely on them so heavily to to sort of disguise their own, not necessarily ineptitude, because they're not always so inept. It's just like to disguise the fact that their party has kind of devolved into a Ponzi scheme yeah. for consultants. Yeah. And they and I think that's a issue, like where you can where they have a hard time coming up with proactive messaging that is divorced from what the Republicans are doing. That are that is divorced from like okay, well, you know, if you don't vote for us, you get them. And I think that's dangerous. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's dangerous to have a party that is so reliant, or rather, it's dangerous to have an opposition party that is so reliant on the other party being so bad that they look good because it doesn't really preclude them actually doing better, right? It doesn't preclude them to do better. It doesn't like sort of spur them to do better if they think that they can just get away with not being so bad. Yeah. And I think people, I think people like people say, Hey, you know what? Like it's either socialism or barbarism. And that has kind of become like the meme. And it, I think it's true. I mean, I think it's true more or less, but I think you have to understand that the democratic party is not necessarily committed to socialism or even moving left. I think they're, I think what they're committed to where they find their, their most brand viability is like, keeping america and american people perched over the precipice of barbarism and because like and like constantly having something to point to that says hey well over like if you don't vote for us you get them and i think that was like that was literally one of their campaign slogans for a little bit <laughs> they, they were shopping hey around. we're not them yeah that was something they really floated yeah. seriously yeah, for yeah. a little bit yeah and, and again that's that that's distressing because like it turns people off they're holding us hostage <laughs> <laughs> I mean, cause I, I know I, I I grew up like you know I, I grew up I, I am poor I'm working class you know and like I, working class in an urban center, uh and so like I know for a fact that like you know if like the Democratic Party thinks that like if they're just not that bad people will come out to vote for them to defeat the Republicans but I think most people you know who come from working class backgrounds who are poor who like you know who are dealing with their own lives like if you're not going to actually affect material change from them for them. They're just going to not show up at all. They'll find some other way to fix their problems. It's like, totally. like but they're not going to just come out for you. Like they're like they'll they'll be they'll like, they will proactively solve their own problems and they're like fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you don't think you're not you're not doing shit. Well, their their total ineptitude and weakness is um I mean, it's gonna I don't know. Like, I've just been thinking about this a lot with the Ilan Omar stuff. Uh, you know, you had that Washington Post or I'm sorry, New York Post cover today that was basically <laughs> the twin towers blow right yeah the twin like towers, this was yeah. the thing yeah. yeah i mean they're gonna get her killed or something man i mean like it's it's fucked up yeah, and it's uh, fucked and yeah no i i just think that just because they can't stand for anything they have no vision they're they're uh they're making her even more vulnerable and open to attack and arc you know facilitating and you know creating bringing out the worst elements in this country islamophobic elements and other things i mean so like yeah it, it's it's disgusting right i think that like you know i didn't expect things to get this far go this far um you know 
I, I know Democratic Party's weak. I know that they had like they have their own issues with Islamophobia and racism because how could you not when you expand like the war on crime and the war on drugs and the war on terror, which are all just like you know various ways to like say the war on poor, the war on brown people, the war on the global south. Right. So like I know they have their own problems. Like you can't do those things without at least at your core like not valuing the lives of people of color, right? You know when Hillary when Chelsea Clinton sort of like injected herself into the conversation for for some fucking reason it's just like I, I i still don't necessarily understand why it's like i guess she's running she's gonna float a 2028 run so she can lose and the clinton foundation can finally go go bankrupt <laughs> um, it's just like it, it's like it, it just became like this whole thing because like it, it, and i think what was jarring about it is how the democratic party likes to portray themselves at least to me right so like you know i'm a i'm a person of color i'm a people of color um and so like i know the democratic party is not really about shit for the most part at, at, at their highest level right I, you can't because like there's so many of them you can't make broad statements about all of them right but like at their highest level your nancy pelosi's your chuck schumer's your Stinny hoyer's you know like your barack obama's like they're not really about shit just a right? bunch like, of like, ain't they're, shit they're, yeah. They, yeah, you know, like they're not really about shit. They're not trying to do anything. They're trying. To, they're not really trying to improve the lives of like the majority of poor Americans in any way that is, you know, comprehensive. They've they've in the '90s under Bill Clinton, post Reagan, and even sort of before Reagan, they largely abandoned like their historical mechanism for arguing why we're better than the Republican Party, and that was like large scale structural public policies, large right. scale systemic changes. You know, no matter how you feel about sort of the racist elements of the of the New Deal, you know, the racist elements of the Democratic Party, you know, you know, after New Deal with the Fair Deal, it's like you can't deny that those were like large scale structural like solutions to the problem. They should have been multicultural. They should have been sort of race conscious. They weren't, but they were better than what we had at this point, which, you know, which was like not which is just like what they've replaced those with which is kind of i would argue you we went from like race conscious you know we went from like sort of like racist structural programs under fdr and to we've moved to like a like well they established a new moral economy that's not built on structural programs we're built on like the symbolic language of anti-racism and feminism and like being the party of people of color of women of the lgbtq community as sort of like the you know the opposite of the republicans which is the party of like rich white men uh southern white men uh you know basically like white male the white male party and then the other party and so when they do things like essentially throw a woman of color under the bus it really reveals that like not only have they abandoned structural solutions to problems they're not even about shit when it comes to standing up for people of color (laughs) like like they're not at least not like once they sort of deviate too far from the norm it's like because it felt it felt like two weeks prior to like elon the elon omar situation um they were they were basically touting her out along with ayanna presley along with aoc along with this sort of this like this cohort of like young you know yeah young women of color yeah there's a big write-up about it in like the rolling stone or something like that yeah they're all like chumming it up and like hanging like on nancy pelosi right yeah on the cover yeah they're like like, hanging out with nancy pelosi aka suge knight (laughs) you know <laughs> you know, like essentially, you know, like she should night in their death row records. Right. Um, but like that to me is very revealing of the truth, right? The Democratic Party, or rather the liberal establishment, whatever you want to call them, like they only like people of color. They only like people of color's narratives, so long as they can be more or less folded into the status quo. 
you know, like they, they like people of color who critique the status quo for maybe like one step to the left of the status quo. Right. You know, right. Whether that be war, whether that be foreign policy, whether that be the economy, whether that be sort of, um, you know, uh, the Democratic Party itself, anything, you know, basically whatever you can say about uh, the, establish the establishment, they want you to be just far enough left to it to be like, oh, well, see, we have a real critique, but not too far left to be off-putting to them and their sponsors. Right. right. I think you can have like a like a generic critique, but like if you're like Ilyana Omar staring Elliot Abrams down, that they they take exception to that. Of course, because at the end of the day, like they're a centrist party and they want to make like in their view of the status quo is that it's it's intrinsic to the social order. It's like everything that's happening in the world right now, the poverty, the violence, the, you know, the not necessarily not necessarily right now, but let's say prior to 2016, the poverty, the violence, the warfare, the destabilization of the global south. That was all part of the plan. You know, that was all within like those were all that was all more or less acceptable to you know, both Democratic Party, Republican Party, and the centrists who they represent. But once you sort of move, once you sort of establish a critique of capitalism, you establish a critique of the American foreign policy, you establish a critique of like neoconservatism, broadly speaking, or American history, or American in, Americans' inherent morality to sort of like be the the world police or Israel or whatever. It's like then suddenly you're no longer useful for a Democratic Party, and that becomes a bigger issue. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Speaking of the Democratic Party, um, I thought it was very fascinating how. Uh, so we had it on the agenda to talk about. It. I don't. We don't really have to talk about it for very long. But the um, video of John Kerry and Thomas Massey. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, did you watch that, Chad? I didn't watch that video. What what, what happened with John Kerry? Well, he was. I guess he was summoned before some House Oversight Committee. And uh, to, I don't know, I guess it was about climate change. Let's talk about the the president, the team he had assembled. Oh, yeah. yeah. John Kerry had called it a kangaroo court or a something kangaroo like that. Kangaroo court, yeah. In an op-ed for the Washington Post. Um, so I thought it was fascinating for um, several reasons, but um, mostly, like, I thought it was interesting that John Kerry's language is basically like, you know, if you want to fund a new Green Deal and if you want to, you know, decrease Car atmospheric carbon or whatever, you know, you've got to tax the 1%. I don't know. I thought that was a very interesting... Um, like, what do you make of that? Like, are people at the top of the Democratic Party, are they starting to tack to the left? Like, there was also that op-ed in the New York Times this week about, like, um, it's time for the center to work with the left. Did you see that one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always concerned about stuff like that because, like I said, I think the I think that people underappreciate just how easy it is to talk a big game, and then not deliver. Right. And I think that you know that was the whole third ways thing. Like you know, the Democratic Party learned how to talk a big game when it came to like LGBTQ representation, uh, anti-racism, feminism, and so my concern is that they're learning how to talk a big game when it comes to uh you know let's say structural solutions of problems or anti-poverty solutions of problem and even climate change but like so for but for me you know the the value in symbolic anti-racism the the value in mastering the language of intersectionality is debatable 
you can debate how you know how useful that is to actually affecting change but the value of like mastering the language of symbolic climate change of like saying oh we recognize the science of climate change but we can't do anything we recognize that in order to solve climate change we would have to tax the one percent but we're not we know and we should have a conversation about that but we're not ever going to we're this conversation is going to last about 20 30 years like there's no value in that like that just we're just all going to die yeah, <laughs> like, that, yeah. That, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds shitty but the truth is it's just like you know we're, we're learning we're learning the like the i mean we, we've learned the limits of like having national conversations about things we've learned the limits of like language and like nothing is more inherently illuminating of that than a, a problem as encroaching and as you know visible and material and like existential as climate change we're like okay well if we have this conversation if we have a national conversation too long about climate change we're all gonna die and it's like like you know and it's like there's nothing like there's no there's no uh there's no language you can use to solve that like to make that okay because you know people are going to be melting and and you know old people are going to be melting in phoenix arizona yeah Uh, new orleans will not exist anymore miami's gone (laughs) yeah yeah and well that's the thing that really contributes to the sort of surreal out surreal i can't say it hypernormativity or whatever of the current moment is that like because the the Democrats are based, you know, as we said, they're stalling. They just want to have a conversation. They're going to keep having a conversation until the world boils. But in doing that, they're yes, they're explicitly telling us we know the problems exist. There's just nothing we can do about them. And most of us are going to be long dead. Like John Kerry's, you know, seventy five. <laughs> right. Diane Feinstein's like eighty two. You know, like they're going to be gone before the shit really gets bad. Yeah. I mean, we're all going to be dead. The only person who's going to be alive is like Henry Kissinger. He's going to be, <laughs> he's going to be fucking like in a uh, in a shawl wrapped around his face, traveling to nuclear wastelands, like all, all, like, <laughs> used to be like Utah, like with like his, with like his irradiated dog with with two heads. Yeah, it's going to be like Fallout. It'll be Fallout yeah. with Henry Kissinger. It's some Mad Max. I mean, it's, I mean, it's real fucked up because, you know, like I, I bet when his grandchildren buried him in that pet cemetery on Indian burial, gra- Indian burial ground, <laughs> they didn't think that he would go on to be a fucking, like, war criminal. But here we are. Like, sometimes, you, sometimes you just meet, you miss Miss Peepaw, but, but he's better off <laughs> <laughs> no, you're yeah, you're right. He's the best manifestation or embodiment of a sort of demiurge like demons just haunting, you know, the American political uh sort of culture for the last. But I mean, I think that this this also goes back to what we were saying about like the Democratic Party and their relationship to the Republican Party, right? Where they've constructed a a, a, a political culture where simply recognizing problems exists. It counts as a win, even yeah. if you don't do anything about them. But like when it comes to climate change, it's so stark because like you have one part that's like climate change isn't real, or if it is real, it's not man-made, or if it is man-made, we can't do anything about it without like basically bankrupting the country. And the other parties like climate change is definitely man-made. We have to listen to scientists, and scientists are like, you have to do something. It's like, well, not that much. We can't listen to them. Whoa, whoa, pal. <laughs> 
whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, go back to your, you know, your math class. We, we just want like, and like, they're trying to score points off of not being science deniers as opposed to, and like, and some people fall for that as opposed to looking at the sort of the whole structure and going, we have a party of science deniers. Like, people who like just don't believe in climate change or like they're wishy washy on it. But like, they're, but like, that's, but for me, it's like, if you're not willing to do something about it, then like, you don't seem smarter. You seem stupider because, frankly speaking, it's like it's better to be like, well, hey, you know what? I don't believe climate change is real. So why would I do something about it? And be like, hey, you know what? I believe a hundred percent that the world is dying, but it's too expensive to fix it. It's like that's that makes you sound like a dumbass. Like the other, <laughs> like the other one just makes you sound like you know, like you know, gra- like dumbass grandpa. Like grandpa doesn't believe in science. The other one's like, oh, so like you believe it's true, but you think that it's too expensive to save the globe. Okay, well, I guess I mean that's not better. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you're saying this. Um, it occurs to me that I think the conservatives might be the only ones in America, really, who can envision a world after the climate collapse. They talk like they do. They all, I mean, a lot of them even say that they, you know, believe it's happening. But as you're saying, Chad, a lot of them are just saying, well, it's too expensive to do anything about. I think liberals and leftists, too, myself included, a lot of us think that, you know, the world is just going to end. After a certain you know amount of climate catastrophe, and the Republicans are basically the only ones saying like, no, it's going to continue going on. We're we're got just... to make some adjustments. Yeah, <laughs> and the adjustments are a insanely repressive state apparatus, like a, something that you know has eroded all the sort of uh, you know enlightenment principles of rights and everything else, and is something more along the lines of just fascism. It's just eco-fascism, and they, and they can envision that. They see that. Whereas on the left, I think again, and this is a huge flaw of us. Like we think that the world will just end after a certain point. Like you know, life and civilization will continue going on. She's going to be bleak as fuck unless the left can intervene. Yeah, and and let's make no mistake, a lot of people are going to die. <laughs> oh, a lot of people will die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and they already are. But unfortunately, the people who are going to be dying aren't going to be like the the oil barons who got us here. They're going to be people who like who are already dying. Yeah, right? people who are already dying in the global south by nature of you know the various droughts, the inhospitality, you know the extreme weather. People who are dying, you know, people who live on coastal, um, like who live in coastal regions or like who live, who like live close to, who are, who, who can't afford better property, so they right. live close to like flood zones and like stuff like that. I mean, like that—that's environmental racism. It's environmental classism. Like the poorest of us, you know, which happen to be, which happen to overrepresent people of color, will happen. Like will be the who are already feeling the effects of climate change. Like you know, people still like. People still have not recovered from Hurricane Katrina, much less the other extreme weather events that have happened since Hurricane Katrina. Right. Because how do you recover when you don't have any savings, with you don't have any money? And so, I mean, frankly, you're right. You know, the like the the it's a small jump from climate change denier, from like a right wing reactionary climate change denier to eco fascist, and that jump is also unfortunately uh, facilitated by the center who have again, you know been indoctrinated with a lot of the same kind of talking points that the far right take to the extreme when it comes like oh well the problem with the world and climate change is overpopulation it's like what kind of fucking neo-malthusian shit is that like overpopulation overpopulation is not the problem because at the you know especially because overpopulation is always kind of um attributed to like oh like there are a lot you know the average sub-saharan mother has like five kids it's like yeah but the average sub-saharan mother has the carp with her five children has has like the the carbon footprint of like one upper middle class white woman in new york city yeah it's not like, even you know the average 
yeah like the average like not the average but like you know more or less like the average person living like like along the mississippi delta or some like the most the most impoverished places in the world both in the global north and the global south like have the carbon footprint of like a family of five uh, who live in like uh, an urban center uh, who run their AC all year round because they want to have climate control. So it's not overpopulation. Like there's just a concentration of, you know, essentially of carbon, of carbon emissions in a very, in a, a key number of places. You know, while we're talking about, you know, uh, population decline and mass death and calamity and the collapse, something Terrence pointed out to me before we came in here was the statistics around opioid crisis that is also making this sort of massive dent you know as if you know looming ecological collapse wasn't enough to worry about uh yeah no um well we were talking about like uh you know opioid abuse in the united states has killed so many people in the last just half decade that um it's had a sizable impact on overall average life expectancy um and uh did you see chad did you see the op-ed in the washington post it came out like literally maybe just a few hours before we started recording um from one of the heirs to like the sackler fortune basically being like, the widow of arthur sackler. the widow of Ackler, arthur sackler yeah she her she basically wrote an op-ed like stop blaming my my husband my deceased husband for the opioid crisis. I mean, listen, I, I understand that. Like, I think if anyone understands that, like, sometimes you just want to be dripping, like, like just like you want to you want to walk through the world, just like just, like dripping like a fucking faucet, <laughs> like like a, like a faucet <laughs> in like a project building. But like <laughs> you know, but like you know, you probably shouldn't start like a massive uh, opioid epidemic to do so there are easier ways like you know i know people deal drugs in order in, in order to get to that sort of that that dripping or like but bernie like, said write a book <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like write a book you know you don't have to like you don't like you don't have to kill <laughs> millions of people i mean you can just become like a rapper or some shit like i don't know like you just but i a mean pastor. you should blame anyone who's familiar with the sackler like with purdue pharma and how like the opioid like how that sort of thing uh, how the opioid sort of epidemic and the the, the mainstreaming of opioids rather came about should absolutely blame the Sackler people, the Sackler family in like the Purdue Pharma. Her argument is basically, and I just want to see what y'all's thoughts are on this. Her argument is basically that Arthur Sackler had nothing to do with the production and distribution of Oxycontin and the marketing of he it. He died five years before Oxycontin hit the market. Right, that's her that's argument. Her thought, yeah. And so, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what you... Totally threw his brothers up. Totally. <laughs> it was Rudy and Mortimer. That's <laughs> what she said. Or Ray and Mortimer. Then she really literally yeah. did finger them, basically. Yeah. Was like, it was them. It was them. Yeah, it wasn't Arthur. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I just, I wonder, like... How much should you have to pay for your family's yeah, sins? Yeah, personally, I think a lot. Personally, personally, a lot. Particularly if you two are a billionaire and you two were involved in if all your that. family fortune overall and the social and literal capital that grows out of that is done so through mass immiseration and exploitation and death, literally. I mean, we're talking misery. I mean, this is serious shit. Um, then I think. 
at the very least, you can with you should be able to be subjected to public scorn. At the very least, particularly if you're worth fourteen billion dollars yeah. as a family. I, personally, I think a just uh, a just solution would be um, a labor camp or something that you you know you have to go and you know be immiserated yourself <laughs> and think about what you fucking done. Right. <laughs> You sound like the richest. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize the richest podcast. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't co-sign this. You know, frankly, uh, I, I don't want to incite violence against billionaires because we do know there's a history of oppression against billionaire. The billionaire. Class. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Pe- people of means. People yeah, of that's, means. That's Howard, Schultz. Howard Schultz's oh, turn. That's right. Yeah. The funniest. Like, the funniest thing I saw from Howard Schultz recently was he said he was talking about bernie and um you know medicare for all and everything he was like they just want to advance their agenda and it's like that's literally that's the politics, point man. of politics <laughs> <laughs> like he's so out of touch he can't even conceptualize it but but no I, but i think he is like the centrist candidate and i think that we have to you know in the post-trump era in the era of like people going out into the streets to protest like for Mueller and like have like signs that say mm. i love laws and we should respect the police and all oh, yeah. other shit we have yeah. to we have to come to terms with there is like there is a substantial part of the population who don't have like, or at least not substantial but like a good number of people who just don't have re- who didn't have real problems before trump right right yeah. you know like you know trump has made things a lot worse for a lot of people who things were bad for before but there was a substantial part of the population like the centrist class of people who like they felt like shit was just going fine it's like yeah there were problems like the world had problems like black people were being shot in the street poor people were dying from from like you know from preventable diseases but their lives their lives were fine it's like and i think that really it's like it's those eight percent of people i would say that's like eight percent of people who like you know there's like there's the one percent the people who were left wealth who are just like super extremely wealthy then there's like the you know eight to ten percent of population you know more or less ballparking it who like were more or less left comfortable by the status quo and for like them the election of trump represented like a severe shattering of the illusion that things were okay because it shattered it changed how they felt about things on that same note um what what did you want to talk a little bit about bernie at all you just want to go past that what are you thinking tom where you at we can talk about we can talk about the bernie but yeah in particular the 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 bernie sort of 20 19 2020 Bernie versus 2016 Bernie and his sort of I don't want to call it a rightward turn but like you know we were talking about like his his borders gaffe in Iowa the other day if you could even call I mean that's putting it mildly uh and just sort of you know how he's you know taken uh he's exchanged poor and working people for the middle class you know you hear the the middle class in his stump speeches more and more that you know the sort of just establishment democratic line yeah and i you know i see a lot of people saying like oh well uh you know it's just that old thing where 80 percent of americans think they are middle class and nobody that's actually poor would say they were poor or working class they would say that you know that i'm middle class which i realize is a thing but where i'm from people that are poor know that they're poor people that are immiserated know that they're immiserated yeah and I don't know. I just wanted to talk a little bit about about all of that. I mean, I'm poor, so like I, I know I, I'm poor and I'm in debt, 
and so that's so like you know as as a lot of people my age are as a lot of americans are and so when it comes to bernie's rightward shift i mean i don't know how much of it is like rightward i don't know how much of it is a shift versus him being a lot more we've had a lot more exposure to bernie now right uh you know in 2016 it's like he was a relatively unknown senator you know at least to the majority of americans who came into the race in kind out of nowhere and like as an underdog and kind of like rocky won it Right. right. They, uh, it was Rocky One. Two thousand sixteen was Rocky One, and now we're at kind of at Rocky. <laughs> right. right, right. We're, yeah. We're, we're hoping to see a win come out of it. So I think. I think. So I think two things are happening. Right. People are, you know, a little bit less. People are, you know, still excited for Bernie. I'm still excited for Bernie. I'm also excited for Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, I'm ex- definitely excited for Mike Gravel because he is like, <laughs> he is whooping ass on Twitter. But <laughs> and I think that like. And so, like, but they're also getting more of him. They're seeing more of him. They're seeing, like, more of the real Bernie. And at the same time, I think that he's been a lot more engaged with the Democratic Party establishment in the past four years. And I think that's a cautionary tale about people who think they can change institutions from the inside. Right. Actually realizing this goes, again, back to what we were saying about, like, the nature of structures and natures of, like, being on the left and being aware of that structures have you know structures have their own inertia structures institutions have their own agency all those like sort of like fancy ways of saying like hey it's a culture there and like if you want to play ball with the democratic party you have to say and do certain things at the same time you know it also goes back to what we were saying about neoconservatism and neoliberalism and the fact that like he's still an american politician and you don't get to be an american politician at that level for that long without having you know at least paying lip service to certain ideas that people generally find to be true about America. Yeah. Like he's not out there saying fuck America. Like, you know, like he's not out there giving like, you know, speeches about like American, you know, American imperialism being like, you know, like the worst thing in the world, which I mean, it more or less is or America rather Americans being the America being the, like the biggest purveyor of terrorism in the world, which, which we are, right. uh, more or less, you know, he's like, he is giving, you know, again, he is giving like, he's out there like speaking narratives that are more or less speaking criticisms of the system that are more or less two or three steps to the left of the Democratic Party. Right. Like, he, he is. He is an FDR Democrat, right? right? You know, like, and so I think for a lot of us who are a little bit further to the left than even an FDR, it's like, oh, well, he's still pretty, you know, he's still pretty far right. You know, he's like, he is a centrist in the rest of the world. And so, like, I mean. Well, and also, easy. and also, too, he's the favorite now. I mean, yeah, arguably. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's different than being just, you know, like. Underdog. Underdog or second <laughs> or third. Like, he's probably the favorite to be the next president of the United States. So what excites me about Bernie is, you know, his language when it comes to structural solutions to problems, right? You know, that's what excites me about Elizabeth Warren too. The acknowledgement that like you can, we can't solve problems with like, with the right words. We can't solve problems with you know with um, with like you know a, a copy of Bell Hooks in one hand and a copy of fucking uh, Langston Hughes poems in the other hand. We have to, we actually have to like do legislation, <laughs> right? right? And, I, and that's and I mean and it, it's it and like it shouldn't be an either or, right? You should be able to be symbolically anti-racist. You you should be able to say the right words and also do the right things, but we have kind of substituted the 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 la- the former for the latter. 
we said okay well as long as you say the right words that's just as good or better in fact than doing the than doing the right thing policy wise and i think the effect of that is that we we end up in a situation where people don't even recognize structural solutions to problems as the real solutions right where you have people who are like okay and i i, I don't want to get like i know people don't like to get too like you know identity politics on it but i but it, it it's distressing when you see people you know, I don't want people to hate me for my id poll, but I, I think it's distressing when you see people like, you know, when I see like liberals, when someone like Bernie Sanders says, okay, well, I want to have free public education. You know, I want to have free college. I want to have, I want to expand social security. I want to expand Medicare. I want to give universal health care. And like you have people who like, have some kind of like whose I guess brains are so smooth they they lack all friction, like the episode of the Magic School Bus. They go into the book and play baseball, and they go like, "Well, how is that going to solve racism or solve misogyny or solve sexism?" And it's just like, "Well, it's not right. No one right. is saying that it is. It's just going to it's just going to raise the bottom floor for a lot of people." And but like that's one aspect of it. But then the other aspect of it is like, okay, but you don't actually have solutions to those problems either. It's just like you, right. it's like you're just saying that this is not a solution to those problems, but you don't actually have a solution to those problems. Like you just have a lot of pretty words to describe the problem. And that you, that you have a lot of really, really eloquent words to describe racism and to describe sexism. And you know, some of, and some of them you use wrong, but you, but you, but you have, <laughs> you have the words to describe them. And so like, it's just, it's like this devalue, it's like neoliberalism, as it took over the Democratic Party, as it infected Americans, it it really led to a devaluation of like public policy and structural solutions to like problems that people face in their everyday lives in favor of just like words. <laughs> and like and that to me is very distressing because words are important. Language is important for building movements. It's important for like building support for things. But like you actually have you have to actually have things to support. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, like, things that back it up you know and things, things that, that back it up yeah it's like i mean like at the end of the day it's like so it, it's hard to see people who are like okay well if this like if if this public policy program is does like is not going to like solve racism that's so racism can be solved like i don't think you can really solve it it's like it's a it's like it's at this point it's, it's pretty hegemonic i don't know how you solve it but like but um but like so like if it can't solve it it's not good but it's like okay but you can't solve it either and you're not even trying to solve it it's like you're just trying to talk about it and it's just like but like and that's but that's not a solution it doesn't improve anyone's life to talk about it i mean like i mean i hate to say it but like i said i grew up poor you know i grew i am poor like my family is still like working class and still my you know my mother still works you know my father still works my grandmother's retired and she lives on social security and you know when you exist in a you know in the podcast space the political media space the you know the writing space it's easy to overvalue conversations about things because it's like that like that's your bread and butter you right know? You know, like that's oh yeah what you do right and and like, also and also more or less you know folks in that world can't afford to wait you know what i mean oh yeah they can afford to wait it's like you know they have a measure of comfortability they're, they're the centrist i talked about they have a measure of comfortability and detachment and insulation from like the effects the material effects of racism and the material effects of sexism or just like the material effects i mean just, just poverty you know we talk about identity politics all the time and tokenization but like you know if, you, if you're on cnn and you're going to do a, a panel on race or whatever like they're smart enough to get like hey you know what we got to get some black people for this panel 
you know we, we, we right. can't have a panel here we can't have a panel on like gender without having some some women and maybe some like lgbtq people and maybe some queer people but like they will absolutely just talk about poverty on the news without anybody who's poor exactly <laughs> no I, yeah one poor person yeah no totally and and I kind of had like a, a miniature meltdown a couple of days ago about that sort of thing. Like just coming to the realization that anything I wanted to do in life, I kind of had to have a rich kid or, you know, at least a upwardly mobile uh, upper middle class person sort of open those doors for me, you know, what I in, in, in some ways and, or, or, sort of being the token hillbilly kind of helped in some ways too to kind of get over that but like just this idea that like somebody's always going to have to like open like certain doors for me to do anything like particularly I, I was thinking about like with like doing writing or anything like in the media you know something like that it's like very much a rich kids game oh yeah because it's a hobby it's, it's, a, it's a hobby. It's a hobby. Um, you know, it's a hobby profession now that like you have to have the ability to essentially work for free for years before you can even justify, you know, work for free or work or, or have someone support you while you intern at Vox or intern at Vice or intern at any number of leftist publications, not leftist publications, but any number of like of center left publications in order to like in order to like build up a resume big enough to like justify a staff position, which still won't pay you any money. Right. It's still going to pay like forty five thousand dollars a year, which is like you can't live on by because by the time you get that that position, you'll probably be 31, 32 years old. In that position is in an industry that is prone to just having an, like massive layoffs. Right. right, totally. Because like not only is, not only is it a hobby profession, it's an industry that like venture capitalists get into uh, for clout and then like close down when it doesn't make all the money in all the, the world. All the money they thought, yeah, exactly. So. It's, it's distressing and like and that has a real effect on the way we talk about problems because so many people who are talking about these problems are insulated from them and you, and you have to be wary both when it comes to sort of like the media and even like academics you know you have to be wary of people for whom like your problems like whether they be poverty or illness or whatever are just academic pursuits or or like or like de or like detached pursuits because they have a hard time sort of like they, they abstract them Right, you know, mm -hmm. you have to be aware of people who like, who study poverty but have never been poor, who who's like who study blackness but really aren't don't have a, a good you know don't aren't black, because it becomes like at the end of the day, it's not something that they have experience with in the way that necess that it necessitates. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I was trying to think of what I were. No, I think we pretty much covered it. We there was one it there was one topic left. It was uh, consent condoms. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm very. I, I know I probably dominated the conversation. I'm, I'm very chatty. You have to interrupt me, or I, I just keep talking. Oh, don't worry. About it. <laughs> no, no. Just, we I trust me. Trust me. We prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> no, much better. Much better to have a guest with things to say than uh, than not and have to carry it yourself. Now I welcome that. That is very true. <laughs> very true. I have the sexy accents. I just sound like I have like a, a deviated septum. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it all works. I might actually. No, I, I check. The no, we've got a big deviated septum, uh, pro deviated septum base in our audience. So yeah, yeah. good. That's, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh no, yeah, I'm talking. Uh, let's see. Deviate. Wait, okay. Now I was gonna. Be, I was gonna say something inappropriate about like I was gonna say deviated septums and like you know like deviate those legs. People deviate those legs for deviated septum. <laughs> 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 
I'm gonna fix it. I'm put this deviated septum in your world real quick. I don't think that's what the word deviate means, though. It's different than deviant, I guess, right? I don't think it is. Like spread, like I mean, spread like there's a hole there. But you know what? I, someone's gonna fact check me, and this is what this is what happens when you when you try to make when you make jokes spontaneously, you don't workshop them in a good situation. I'm sorry, oh, but consent condoms, are those the condoms that you have to have four hands to open? That's right. Right. Yeah. I, I don't understand how that, that works. Like, like, what, like, why would you need four hands to open them? Well, um, there's apparently it's a box, and I don't know. I guess it's like four people have to press on, or I'm sorry, four hands have to be pressed on all sides of the box at one time. Here's my thing. But it's, it's impossible. Like, like it's like the lament configuration from Hellraiser? Yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and uh, and it opens up, and then there's a condom that comes out of it, and then you, you know, after you've done the Hellraiser uh, configuration, you put the condom on and have sex. And that's, That sounds like it's going to lead, lead to a lot of unintended pregnancy, people who just, you get frustrated. Well, this is the weird thing about it. Uh, once I actually read the articles and stuff about it, it's like uh, it's just an ad campaign. It's not even really a mar- uh, an 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 like commodity, like a product. It's just basically an ad campaign. But also, yeah. here, here's the thing too. I can think of a lot of uh, unconsensual situations that you could probably produce four hands to do the Hellraiser code. With. That's you know what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well. Th- it's, it's- the thing Devil's is, trying to over again. That's right. They want to have a prof. You know, they want to have. It's what we were talking about earlier. They just want to start a conversation because we've ceded all cultural territories to the corporations now. You know, they 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 start all the. You know, it's like Gillette. It's like know. the the Dwayne Wade Budweiser commercial, the tearjerker. <laughs> y'all saw that? I didn't. Well, I mean, it. I mean, like I haven't seen that one, but like I will say, I think that like, I think. It, People are incredibly bad about talking about consent, even like across the board. Yeah. Like, and, and, and frankly, it's like there, and there are various ways to be bad about it. Like there is like just the like, okay, I'm so neurotic or I'm so shy or I'm so anxious or I'm so like, you know, I, you know, society, we're, generally as a society, we're, we're very puritanical. Right. So people don't have a, people don't have a good language inherently you know to talk about sex and talk about consent that goes the opposite way too it's like some people have mastered the language of consent right to the point in which it's not earnest and it's just manipulative and it's yeah manipulative yeah and that that sort of ties in the conversation we were having about like mass like the the ability to like sort of the ability to master language in a way that obscures your lack of actual care about the the intention of that what the what that language was created to do i will just say uh condoms that require four hands are incredible what if you what if you're an amputee hey it's ableist i didn't think you're right that that is very ableist like like, i mean like shit like what if you're you have to get like your roommate to come in or like in the and give an extra hand like that yeah yeah no uh, the uh, I I like the I like the approach though. Um, could you like envision a future in which, let's say, you want to like shoot up an elementary school or something? You have to have four hands to activate an AR-15 <laughs> <laughs> to activate any kind of high-powered <laughs> rifle or something. You have yeah, to... we're just going to take this model and go with everything in society. <laughs> and just... Gotta have four hands, hands. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, hey, like, listen. I mean, would it cut down on on shootings? Probably not. <laughs> but a lot of people out there who want to shoot up schools, apparently. Yeah, but you'd be making but a statement it. at least. I was getting ready to make a really bad joke about Goro from Mortal Kombat. Go, I yeah. mean, he's got you know he's got four arms, right? So. <laughs> I, I, know, I know what you're. I know what you're thinking. He has two dicks. Yeah, that's right. That's, right. Yeah. that's the way it works in biology, right? For every two arms, you get one dick. That's the way evolution works, I guess. Yeah, that's I, right. I have four dicks. <laughs> that's right. And spiders, spi- I, I, spiders have five because God hates spiders. Yeah, he smited them. Um, so they have an extra dick they don't have. They don't know what to do with. Like they're jerking off all four of their other dicks at once, but they've got that one that they can't do anything with. <laughs> no, they, they, have, they, have, they have to use their left hand for they have to, their non-dominant hand for that one, which is like always a weird experience. But imagine how much weirder it'd be if you had two with like one, like one hand job was good, but like the other one was bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah like, like you know like we've all been there like we have like we've broken our i don't know our hand, our right hand or left hand if you're a lefty is just like out of commission for whatever reason and like you got to go with the the opposite hand kind of makes it a little more exciting in some ways you know it's like oh this isn't my I hand mean, <laughs> yeah i guess <laughs> maybe the, maybe the first time <laughs> i me myself old faithful just you know you Look, I'm a right hand, but I'm a right hander uh, by you know for everything writing and everything else. But I'm ambidextrous when it comes to jerking off, and I'm, in fact, uh, I think I prefer the left hand. <laughs> Jesus. <Christ. laughs> now I know you're lying. I, I listen. I don't appreciate you coming me coming on your show and you doing irony at me. <laughs> God damn it! Sorry, Chad. Um, it won't happen again. <laughs> It's this close to home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the only reason you know you're mad. You're both mad at me because it hits close to home. <laughs> you know how many people have died? Have died from like jacking it with the non-dominant hand. That's how my grandfather died. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're canceled. Is that, that's Fuck. all I gotta say to you. Godspeed, Granddad Vigorous. Yeah. <laughs> Gone too soon. Jacking it with angels now. That's right. <laughs> Jacking it with God now. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Damn. He's right hand, so you you always you always have you always have a free hand. That's God, right. God has to be right hand because they're always talking about you know so and so sitting at the right hand of God now. They're sitting at the you know, I don't know. Anytime your grandfather dies or somebody you know, it's like oh they're sitting at the right hand of God now. Nobody says the left hand. I'm gonna start no saying God's now. lap. Like, who's singing God's lap? Like Santa. <laughs> G- Jesus. Like, maybe, maybe, maybe God's a daddy bomb. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could be. Could, you, Jesus just sits in his lap and he rocks him all day. <laughs> he, just, even no, as, he even as an him. adult. No, God breastfeeds <laughs> Jesus. That's the way it works. <laughs> I mean, people, like, people say people say God, Jesus is God's son, but really, I think it's like a kink relationship. It's like a, it's like a a daddy dom little boy kind of relationship thing they have going on which is fine yeah yeah i, mean, I don't i don't want i don't want to kink shame anybody especially not the lord <laughs> you don't want to kink shame god man god god can't be a pedo <laughs> i mean like it's it's not p it's not ddlg relationships as i've been told many times it's it's just uh it's pedophile adjacent like libertarians no <laughs> libertarians are just pedophile. <laughs> that's right 
Although I will say I, I pay a lot of money in taxes, and like I, every time I see how much money I pay in taxes, I think to myself like I would definitely be a libertarian if it wasn't for like all of the pedophilia and racism. But like those like those two things, they just like they you just can't separate out not wanting to pay taxes with just like being like a weird like being like a weird. <laughs> just, that's yeah, that's always weird. no, that's always bugged me uh, when liberals would be like, oh, you know, I'll gladly pay my taxes, and everything. It's like fuck no, you won't. taxes fucking suck, man. Nobody likes paying taxes. <laughs> yeah, I mean like I. Especially yeah, if it's go, go, like, no, we just do it. Do what? We just do it. No one likes paying taxes. Yeah, we just, we yeah, just do it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you all just do it. <laughs> anyway, anyways, Chad, thanks, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show this week, man. Chad, we, you want, a... you got anything you want to plug? Yeah, before you wanna... we uh, set sail. Uh, no, I think that I, I feel like I've talked enough. I mean, of course you can always listen to me more, talk more. If for some reason you weren't overwhelmed by the amount that I talk on this podcast, I promise I, I ironically talk a little bit less on my own, but, um, <laughs> uh, a little bit less, but of course you can listen to my podcast, the discourse, which is available on SoundCloud and iTunes and probably Spotify at some point. Um, and you can always find me on Twitter at pretty bad lefty pretty is spelled how you think bad is also how it's spelled how you think and lefty is spelled with a y not an ie uh even though we i just spent like 15 minutes shitting on left-handed people i suppose it's a little awkward <laughs> um, but other than that thank you for inviting me you know i had a great time always love talking to like-minded people hell yeah man well we always appreciate your takes and uh always fun to talk shop and let's uh, let's do it again we'll sometime, have to do it so. again sometime